Good morning, church family. How are we doing? We good? It's good to see you. I uh, sincerely did not know uh, over a year ago, a year and a half ago, when we planned out this sermon series, that the verse in Hebrews 13 that says, obey your leaders and submit to them would fall on Pastor Appreciation Sunday. So I think God has a sense of humor uh, and is sovereign over all things. Uh, I do appreciate that. Yeah, first service, uh, the rest of the team was, was sitting in here uh, participating in the worship service. I think they're all off leading, meeting with people, doing things during this service. But uh, I can, know I can speak on their behalf of just how grateful we are for you as the church body. Uh, to get to lead and love and serve this church body is truly a delight and it's truly a joy. And so thank you for that opportunity. And yes, we are dealing with the subject of leadership today. This is the second to last sermon from the book of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews, as he's wrapping up his sermon, as he's wrapping up this sermon that was then turned into a letter, what he's doing is he's giving some closing instructions. Kind of a, hey, before we go, remember this. Don't forget. Remember this. Let me, oh, one more thing. Like any good preacher, he's just dragging it out. And so uh, we're going to see today this idea of, of leadership, and we're going to look at kind of a, a bookends about leadership, and in the middle we're going to really hit the content, the heart of the gospel that is the foundation for all. Leadership is always, I'd like to uh, read through the passage, verses 7 through 19. I'd like to pray and then spend some time unpacking these words together. So read along with me, if you would, beginning in verse 7. <clears throat> Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So also Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us your word to teach us and train us and correct us. And God, I, I know that each and every single one of us coming here today, um, we need something from your word. We need to be challenged. We need to be strengthened. We need to be corrected. We need to be encouraged. So God, I pray for, for all of us today. Uh, would you give us soft and receptive hearts that we might truly 
hear from you and, and see what we need to see and respond how we need to respond. God, for myself, I pray that you'd guard my lips, help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And God, would you give us all uh, eyes to focus on Jesus in whose good name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Uh, friends, leadership matters. Leadership matters. It's an incredibly important topic. It's an incredibly important subject. It's an incredibly important discipline. Leadership matters. And so I've been thinking about leadership in a few different contexts, and it was kind of interesting this week. Uh, I had a conversation with my daughter, my 10-year-old daughter, Delaney. My oldest two daughters have been serving on the school patrol team. You guys familiar with the school patrol? They, They show up 20 minutes early. They stay 20 minutes late. They put on those really lovely and fashionable orange jumpsuits and they wave a flag to stop traffic and they put out cones and they, they just have this little team that runs around. Uh, there's a teacher involved, but it's pretty much student-led, student-directed fifth and sixth graders. And on Delaney and Mackenzie's team, their team leader is this boy named George. He's a fifth grader, 10 years old, sweet kid, and he just kind of runs the show and takes care of everything. I uh, had dropped her off and there was like a cone missing or something and I mentioned it to her and she mentioned it to somebody else and they went and got George and he directed the whole thing and they fixed it all up. I was like, this is amazing. Good job, George. And so I was just asking her like, is George a good leader? Yeah, absolutely. He's a very good leader. Well, why? What makes him a good leader? And she goes, well, he's He's nice. He, he's kind with his words. He speaks politely and respectfully to the other people on the team. I'm like, well, that's, that's good leadership. I said, what else? He goes, well, he's responsible and, and he's dependable. Like, he always shows up. He's always there. If he says he's going to do something, he, he does it. He doesn't flake out. He doesn't back out. That's good. That's good leadership. What else? I kept digging. Well, he gives clear instructions. When there's a problem, he, he identifies it and he says, okay, can you do this and can you do that? And they, they get things figured out and they get things fixed. He's a, he's a good leader. I said, that's amazing. How old is he? How soon can he run for president? Uh, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, the word of God speaks about leadership and we have this passage here this week. I'm really fascinated by this election, this presidential election Uh, And I don't just mean fascinated in like the train wreck sense, like most of us are, but I'm really fascinated because this election is really giving us a key look into human nature, isn't it? Both for good and for, for, for bad. What this election is showing me though, and it should show all of us, is that we crave leadership. We, as human beings, we were built for, we were made for leadership. We're made to to lead and to follow. And the amount of investment that people are are putting into who is going to be the next president of the United States of America is just remarkable to me. I was reading with my my children a few weeks ago in their children's Bible, and we got to the story of King Saul, the first king of Israel. And see, God had rescued and redeemed his people out of Egypt. He had led them. He had given them prophets. He'd given them priests. But God says, I'm your king. You're going to be unique among the nations that you don't have a king. I'm your king. And the people, they they basically got a mob together. They surrounded the prophet Samuel and said, Samuel, we want to be like the other nations. We're sick and tired of this arrangement. We want a king. Well, Samuel was pretty bummed out about that. But God said to the prophet Samuel, Samuel, don't, don't be bummed out. It's not you they've rejected. It's me they've rejected. They wanted an earthly king. They weren't satisfied or content to have God as their king. Thinking about U.S. history, uh, you guys know that the, the Revolutionary War was fought and the founding ideals from the founding fathers of the United States is we don't want to have a king. 
We don't want a monarch, one person who's in charge of us. We're going to set up this government. We're going to have, you know, legislative, executive, judicial branch. There'll be checks and balances, you know, separation of powers, etc. And then do you guys know that right after the Revolutionary War was fought and won, they tried to make George Washington king? Like, we didn't even make it out of the decade before human nature cropped up again. We said, you, you're the guy. You're such a good leader, we want to make you king. He's like, remember, we talked about this, guys. And now here we have, in our current political climate, in our current political season, an election where people are investing all of their proverbial eggs in the basket of this one presidential candidate is going to be the one who will either A, solve everything that's wrong in the United States, or B, cause the demise of Western civilization. We, we crave a king, don't we? We want to be led. We want someone to be in charge I think it's just built into who we are as humans. Leadership is easy to define, but it's hard to do. Leadership is easy to define. I mean, you can define all sorts of ways, but it really boils down to uh, someone, a person, or people standing up, rallying other people towards a common purpose. Let's go here. Let's go there. Let's accomplish this. And then Showing the people how it's going to be done. Investing the time, energy, and resources to see that, that purpose achieved. It's, it's, it's easy to talk about, isn't it? We need leadership. We need good leadership. Yeah, we do. It's really hard to do. Any of you who have served in any sort of leadership position know that to be true. So here's, here's the big idea of what I want us to see today from, from the scriptures, from the word of God. This is the big idea. It's this. Jesus is our ultimate leader. He's our king. He's our high priest. He's our prophet, and he's the good shepherd, that's a leadership term, by the way, who laid down his life for the sheep. Seeing and treasuring Jesus' servant leadership will change both how we follow and how we lead in the church, in the home, and in all other areas of life. I want to read that one more time just so we're all clear where we're going. Jesus is our ultimate leader. Can I just get an amen right out of the gate from that one? Jesus is our ultimate leader. He's our king, high priest, prophet, and the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. And when we see and treasure Jesus' servant leadership, it's going to change how we follow and how we lead really in all aspects of life. And so we're going to look at leadership. We're going to look at three things. We'll see the leader's work. We're going to see the leader's foundation. And then we're going to see the leader's Joy. So let's go back to verse 7 and look at the leader's work. The author of Hebrews writes, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Okay, there's a lot happening in this passage. Some kind of interesting things brought together that we might not have thought off the top of our heads. What's going on? And I think that the the thing we really need to answer first out of the gate is, what leaders is the author of Hebrews talking about? What leaders is he referring to? Consider your leaders. Imitate their way of life. I, I think there's a couple of ways we can look at it. The first is the most immediate context is he's likely referring to the people who very first spoke the gospel to them and helped uh, establish them in the faith. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 3, there's this verse that talks about, remember those that, that heard the message of the gospel from Jesus himself and then they came and delivered that message to you. And so there's a group of leaders 
There's a group of leaders that helped establish the listeners in the faith of Jesus. I think that it's possible that some of these leaders were older. Maybe some of them have even died or passed away because he says, consider the outcome of their life. Like when you think about their whole life as a total, think about what they've done and, and imitate them. So the, the smallest context, the most immediate context, is the author of Hebrews is talking about those first leaders that ever taught them about Jesus. I think there's a slightly broader context, though, too. I think he's also referring to leadership in general, specifically in the church, though, what we would call the office of the elder or a pastor or an overseer. Jesus has given a a specific role of leadership to his church, and we use these three different terms interchangeably. We use these terms interchangeably at Sound City because we see that to be the pattern of the New Testament. The, 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 The term overseer comes from the Greek word episkopos. It's actually where we get our word episcopal, an overseer. Uh, It means to be able to look over the entire church and have a kind of an oversight. That term makes sense. There's a term elder. That comes from the Greek word presbyteros. And all that that means, it it literally just means someone who is older, but uh, the Bible doesn't give an actual age range. What it really means is someone who's mature, someone who has some experience, someone who has some life experience, some leadership experience, and is able to lead not from a place of inexperience, but maturity. And then the word pastor. Uh, Some churches use the word pastor differently. We don't because we see that just, again, used interchangeably in the pages of the New Testament. The word pastor comes from the word to shepherd. If you see shepherd or pastor, those are the same root word of the Greek. And you think about what a shepherd does. A shepherd chases down the sheep and makes sure that they're safe and protects them and leads them and takes them to where they can get food and water and has kind of a, a, a role of protection and guidance and leadership and feeding. And, and those words are used interchangeably. Let me give you one other example from elsewhere in the New Testament. This is from 1 Peter 5. This is the Apostle Peter, one of the original 12 disciples, one of Jesus' closest friends. He's writing to another group of of elders. He says, I exhort the elders among you, so there's our word, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. What does he tell them to do? He says, shepherd or pastor the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, there's that other word, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. We see those three terms used interchangeably, and as we unpack this passage in Hebrews, we see a lot of overlap in the instructions given, don't we? So I think the author of Hebrews is speaking about the elders of the church, So yes, specifically those who first taught you the gospel, but more broadly, he's speaking to the elders of the church. Let me me just say this, though. Third thing is, yes, this passage is about church leadership, but I think that the principles can also apply to other areas of leadership. Are you a leader? Do you have an area of influence, oversight, responsibility? Not all of you are elders in the church. In fact, if this sermon was only to the elders of the church, this would be a very limited context for me to give this sermon. Some of you lead in the church. Some of you are small group leaders. Some of you are musicians, band leaders. Some of you lead in our children's ministry. Thank you for leading in our children's ministry and helping teach the gospel in age-appropriate ways to our youngest disciples. We don't believe in babysitting, amen? We believe in discipleship. So many of you have roles of leadership within the church, How many of you, maybe a quick show of hands, how many of you are a boss or a manager or a supervisor at your work? You have employees that you oversee. Show of hands. Okay, that's a good number of you. 
You are a leader. You have a position of influence. You have a position of authority and responsibility. Another show of hands. How many of you are parents or grandparents? Okay, that's a, quite a few of you. And I expected that because I saw how many children were checked into our kids ministry. It's a lot. You are a leader. Some of you, you know, stay-at-home moms. Oh, I'm, I, don't, I don't have any position of leadership. Yes, you do. Constantly, day in and day out, you have a position of authority and leadership from those little blessings that the Lord sent to you to love and care for and shepherd and steward. Some of you may lead in politics. Some of you might lead in the public sector, in, in government, or in, you know, uh, police or fire or public health. Maybe you work at a hospital and you're an administrator, whatever it might be. Some of your coaches, you, you coach a little league team or you're a personal trainer, or you're a fitness coach or a health coach or whatever it might be. We all have areas of influence, responsibility, and authority. So here's, here's what I believe. I believe that this passage today, it's going to look specifically at the lens of church leadership But I believe there are things that are principally true that we can also apply to the various areas of leadership and responsibility that we have. So that's what I'm asking you today. As we dive into these verses, can you look kind of through the dual lenses? One of church leadership. We're all, we're part of this church. Let's look through that lens together. But but be thinking for yourself, the areas of responsibility and influence that I have, how, how how does this passage speak to me? How can I be shaped and changed so that my own leadership can change as well? There's a, a pastor in uh, Chicago area, Bill Hybels, and he has a quote that I think is just very true. He says this, everyone wins when a leader gets better. Everyone wins when a leader gets better. When a leader truly gets better, truly comes to lead more like Jesus, truly comes to uh, not seek to domineer those under their care, but to really build them up in love. I think people win. I think everybody wins. That's true in the church, it's true in the home, it's true in the marketplace, it's true in all areas of life. So I just urge you, look through those two lenses as we go through. I'm going to speak, again, primarily in the context of the elders and the leadership in the church, but, but keep that in the back of your mind as we go. Okay, so what does the author of Hebrews say is the work of the church leaders? The first one is this, to speak the word of God. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. In verse 8, he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then he says, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Kind of an unusual thing that's going on here. What's the author of Hebrews saying? Well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you. I'll tell you. Uh, this, This controversy comes up where some people are teaching something that's a diverse and a strange teaching. And we don't know exactly what it is, but it has something to do with food. Now, I know this seems crazy to us in 21st century America, but sometimes people have weird ideas about food and, so, uh, and strong opinions about what you should and shouldn't eat and put into your body. But in this culture, very often it would take on religious significance. Don't eat this, don't touch that, don't consume this, do consume that. It had to do with how you were worshiping. What the author of Hebrews is saying is, hey, I don't care what they're telling you about these, these don't eat, don't taste. He said, it's better to be strengthened by grace and be thankful for those leaders who spoke to you the word of God, who told you about the truth of God's word. And he grounds it in the truth about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus doesn't change. 
Nations rise and fall. People come and go. Cultures shift and change like the wind. But at the end of the day, there is one who is completely unchanging. Church, his name is Jesus. It's always fascinating to me how it seems like once every few years or so, five, ten years, some guy writes a book and he says, I, I now have this insight into something from the Bible or something about Christianity, which all of the theologians in 2,000 years of church history somehow managed to miss, but I figured it out. I found it. And if you buy my book for $9.99, you too can be as enlightened as me. Friends, I'm all for taking a fresh look at the scriptures, making sure we're not operating out of our cultural prejudices and beliefs. We do need to constantly be looking with new eyes at the word of God. But at the end of the day, there are such things as diverse and strange teachings. And they need to be, they need to be shown as harmful and destructive. They don't build you up. What builds you up is the grace of God. The author of Hebrews says it's good to be strengthened by God's grace, not by teachings about food. It's interesting, the word that's used there for strange is the word xenos. It actually means foreign or foreigner. It's where we get our word xenophobia from, fear of foreigners. Earlier in the chapter, we talked about welcoming those who are strangers. Same exact word. Welcome those who are foreigners. Welcome those who are strangers. Do not welcome strange teachings. What, it's, what it means is this. It means there's room for every person in the kingdom of God. There is not room for every teaching in the kingdom of God. You guys understand that difference? It's the same root word. The, the role of church leadership is to speak and to teach on the word of God. Friends, that's why when we gather together, one of the primary things we do is we open this book and we see what it has to say. It's why we do things like take a year to march line by line, verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. It's why even in a few weeks when we start a new sermon series, we're going to do a, a topical study. Guess what? Every single week, this book is going to be open and a significant passage of scripture is going to be read because the last thing in the world you need are the thoughts and opinions of Aaron Gray or any other pastor. What you need is the truth of the word of God. Amen? That's what we're doing. That's why we do it. That's why we as a church are committed to the teaching of the scriptures because Jesus doesn't change. Culture changes. Boy, does culture change. I am, I am often surprised at the level of shock and outrage that people can express over something we just deemed was culturally inappropriate 15 minutes ago. Like, we are, we are um, inconsistent at best and absolutely illogical at worst as a culture, beyond hypocritical. But the truth of God's word doesn't change, and so we always want to be speaking that. Now, again, practice this. You're not all pastors, you're not all elders in the church preaching the word of God, but, but those areas of leadership that you do have, do you speak truth? Do you speak truth that's in line with the truth that God has revealed in his word? When you have those opportunities to teach or when you have those opportunities to instruct or when you have those opportunities to correct, are you doing so from your own thoughts and opinions, how you feel about things, or are you doing so from a place that's informed biblically? Just think through that lens. The second thing he says this is, is the leaders are to model a godly life. Verse seven, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The saying, uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, there's some truth to that. I actually think that imitation 
is the sincerest form of trust. If you're going to imitate somebody, you trust them, right? If you're going to do what they're doing, if you're going to look at their life and you're going to imitate them, well, that means you want to be like them. That means you're trusting that there's something there that's worth holding on to. The, the author of Hebrews is saying to the leaders, hey, make sure you're living a godly life. Make sure you're living a life that's worth being imitated. He's saying to those members of the church, make sure that you're following the way of life of those godly people. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Friends, our salvation is by God's grace alone. It's not by works, amen? But that salvation, that, we, that grace that we receive will result in good works. If, if that grace has really taken a deep root in our hearts and in our lives, it should result in a transformed life. It should look like your life is different than it was before. And so all of you, uh, do you have somebody in your life, or even better than somebody, do you have somebodies, multiple people in your life, that you can look at and say, I have seen the fruit of their life, and it's good fruit. I want to follow their example. Oh, by the way, a godly life and a godly example is not a perfect life and a perfect example because there are no such thing as perfect Christians. If you're here and you think you're a perfect Christian, we need to talk afterwards because you are going to mess up our church very badly, okay? We are all sinners saved by God's grace. I am flawed. You are flawed. What a good example looks like is not someone who always has it all together. No, a good example looks like someone who says, I do not have it all together, and I rely daily upon the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Is this person really good at always having it all together? Is this person really good at repenting well? Is this person you're following Someone who tries to keep their sin quarantined off and kind of hidden in a closet or just someone who walks openly and transparently? Is this person who walks openly and transparently about their sin but kind of glories in it, like they're proud of all their sin? Or is it someone who says, no, this is the stuff that nailed Jesus to the cross. I want to put it to death by his help, by his grace, by his spirit. You guys follow what I'm saying? Not a perfect person to follow, a godly person to follow. Someone who lives a lifestyle of humility and repentance. Again, this applies for all areas of leadership. Where you're a leader, do you live pridefully or do you live humbly? Where you have people to follow, do you imitate good leaders or do you gravitate towards bad leaders? I think there's principles to be drawn here in the broader context outside of just the the church. So again, think through that double lens. The third thing that the church leaders are supposed to do is this. Keep watch over souls. I I borrowed, I jumped down from to verse 17 because he gives that instruction as well. He says that the leaders of the church, they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. There is no verse in the Bible that makes my heart skip a beat quite like that one. I don't say that to sound dramatic. I say that to sound truthful because as much as I love and enjoy being a leader in the church, as much as I I deeply appreciate the opportunity to teach you the scriptures, to be a part of the leadership team, to be one of your overseers, one of your elders, that is a weighty verse for me and for all of the other men who, who serve on our elder team. Keeping watch over souls. I mean, I just... I'll take you through a list of questions that I ask myself when I think about the people of the church. I mean, the first question I always ask is, are they saved? I don't want to see a bunch of people's face here on a Sunday morning and then get to the other side of eternity and not see the people there. 
Are these people saved? Are we, are we just building a big audience where we have a, a feel-good party? Or are we actually talking about sin and repentance and, and, and salvation and all of those sorts of things? Are, are you saved? And I mean that literally today. I'm, that's not a rhetorical question. I'm asking today, are you saved? There's nothing more important that I can do as a pastor to make sure that you've been introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ. From there, I start asking questions. Well, are they walking in repentance from ongoing sin? Are they walking in the light? Are you, are you walking in relationship with other Christians that you can share your struggles with? Are you, are you uh, walking in joy of salvation, not just beating yourself up over how much of a fail you are, but rejoicing in the fact that God has loved you and God has saved you and God has pardoned you and God has forgiven you? Are you experiencing relationship with God through prayer? Are you reading the scriptures and letting your mind be shaped by the truths of God's word more than being shaped by the truths that that culture puts out there? Uh, Are you serving and contributing to the needs of others for their benefit and for your own? How many of you know serving is not just good for the person being served, it's good for the person doing the serving. It actually strengthens your soul. Are you contributing to the needs of others? Are you giving of your finances, not just to the church, but to the needs of others uh, in your community and in your life? Are you uh, evangelizing and sharing the gospel with people who don't yet know Jesus? Are you discipling someone? Are you pouring into someone else? These are the questions that I, I, I'm not trying to sound dramatic, but these are the things that will literally keep me up at night. And any other of our pastoral team, I can speak very confidently on your behalf. This is what we think of for you. This is what we want for you, to keep watch over your souls. It's not for my own benefit. It's not for their own benefit. It's because we want to love you and serve you and be able to present you before Jesus one day, saved, sanctified, walking in a close relationship with him. It means that we'll do things like pick up the phone and be like, hey, like, Seem like something's been off lately. Can we talk? Start to dig in a little bit, you know? In some churches, they call that meddling. Oh, you just went from preaching to meddling. Well, I was just reading the Bible and it says, you know, that we're to pursue. And if you see your brother going astray, pursue him. And you might bring him back. You save him from, save him from death. It means that we'll do things like say, hey, you should be a member of this church. I don't, I don't know everybody in this room. We as the whole elder team, we can't know everybody in this room. And, and guess what? There was a, a service before this one and it was, the room was even fuller than this. And so like, I, don't, I don't know. If you're a guest or a visitor, you're welcome. We're glad you're here. No pressure, not trying to get you to sign on the dotted line. But at some point, if you're here, I, I want to know that you're here. I want to know that you're not just kind of stopping in to just kind of participate in the worship service and leave. Like if you're here, I want to know that you're here so I can love you and I could know you're one of those ones that I'm supposed to keep watch over your soul. It's why we say things like, yeah, come be a member. It's why we say things like, hey, you know, you ever thought about being in a community group? You ever thought about being in a small group with other disciples, other believers who you could have like a regular rhythm of just sharing your life and talking to others as opposed to just coming to a Sunday service or dropping in or just listening online or whatever? That's why we would say those things. I know in our, in our particularly independent culture, those things feel like you're trying to control me, but I'm, I'm sincerely telling you, from my own heart, as best as I can judge before God, I and the other elders, we want to care for you and love you to keep watch over your souls. That's why we would say those things. So that's what the leader does. Their work is to speak the truth, to model a godly life, and to keep watch over people, to actually care about people. 
Now, this controversy actually sends us into the second portion of this passage because the author of Hebrews is saying, some people are teaching false doctrine. They're, they're trying to lead you astray. You need to listen to the leaders who are going to teach you the truth about what God says. And so the author of Hebrews kind of just goes into this little excursus. He opens up this big, long list about what the gospel actually is. Here's what the truth of God's word actually says. So we're going to pick back up in verse 10. He says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Oh boy, there's a lot going on there. What he's saying is, here's the foundation of these leaders. Here's what they should be teaching you. And the the number one thing is this, is the reality of sin. The reality of sin. Notice what he said in verse 10. He talked about these priests are offering a sacrifice for sin. The author of Hebrews doesn't shy away from the topic of sin. And so neither should we, friends. If you want to hear the the good news first, you need to hear the reality of the bad news. The bad news is we have all chosen rebellion against God. We have all fallen away from his ways. We've all broken his laws. We've all broken his commandments. And on our own, we stand rightly condemned. We don't shy away from the topic of sin at Sound City Bible Church, do we, friends? A few weeks ago, one of our members brought a non-Christian friend, attended the service, and I got the best feedback I've ever gotten in my entire life. They said, yeah, I was really uncomfortable by all that talk about sin and repentance. I'm going to come back in a few weeks. That is the best thing I could have possibly heard. We're going to talk about sin. Friends, you and I need to acknowledge the reality of sin. And he's, he's dealing with Old Testament imagery. He's talking about this, this altar. They would bring these animals to, to sacrifice these animals, to give as a burnt offering, as an atonement for our sin. But then the author of Hebrews says, no, there's, there's something different. We don't go to that altar. We don't go to those animal sacrifices. We have a better altar to go to. In fact, those people who are still doing the sacrifices, they don't even have a right to come to this other altar because this other altar is just Jesus. He is the sacrifice. That's number two, the death of Jesus. Verse 12, he says, so Jesus also suffered outside of the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Friends, hear me on this. There is no such thing as a Christian church without the cross of Jesus. You could come to a so-called church. We could open up the Bible. We could talk about nice principles. We could even quote from Jesus. But if it doesn't center on and revolve around the crucifixion of the Son of God in our place for our sins, then it's not Christian. It's like diet Christian or Christian light or something. It's Christian-ish. But the reality of being a Christian is this. You acknowledge that you are a sinner and then you acknowledge that Jesus is the one who suffered and died in our place that we might have God's forgiveness. And this idea that he, he suffered outside of the gate. They talked about these sacrifices happening outside of the gate. What that means is things that were unclean and shameful, you took them out of the city. This is dirty. This is vile. This is unclean. When Jesus was crucified, he was not crucified in the city of Jerusalem. He was crucified on a hill nearby because that was unclean. That was vile. 
They didn't do crucifixions within the city. They did it outside of the city. But there's a deeper spiritual truth here. It's this, that the apostle Paul tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That on that cross, Jesus took all of our sin, all of our uncleanness, and he took it upon himself so that what would be left for us was nothing but God's love and God's grace. Is that good news to anybody here today? And by the way, we're not just only talking about the death of Jesus. We're also speaking about his resurrection. The author of Hebrews uh, speaks more about the death of Jesus than he does about the resurrection, but it's in there. That we don't just serve a dead religious founder. He wasn't just a good guy who then got killed But on the third day, he came back from the dead. He was planted in the ground like a seed on a Friday. And on Sunday morning, a new shoot broke forth from the ground and a new humanity has dawned on the earth. He's alive, friends. That's the reality of the gospel message. There is no Christian church without the cross of Jesus Christ. The third thing the author of Hebrews says is now you're going to follow him. It's going to cost you. There's a cost to discipleship. It said, let us therefore go outside of the camp to him and bear the reproach that he endured. Friends, God's grace to us is completely free. We don't earn it by any of our works, but it's going to cost you everything. Well, wait a minute, Aaron. Aren't you speaking out of both sides of your mouth? No, I'm just being biblical. Yes, God's grace is free. We don't earn it by our works. We don't impress God with our efforts, but it does cost us everything to follow him. Jesus doesn't want to be one of the tools that you add to your tool bag. He doesn't want to be one of the the knickknacks that you put in your fanny pack of life so that when you reach a hard time, you can pull out your Jesus card and you can use that. No, Jesus says, I want you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. You want to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you everything. It says, we're going to go outside of the camp and we're going to bear the reproach that he endured. Jesus suffered reproach. Did you know that? The most loving, gracious, compassionate, generous person who has ever lived was hated. Sometimes there's this myth we believe in the church that if we were just nice enough and if we were just kind enough and if we just tamed down the message enough that all the people in our culture would love us and like us and it would all just be very happy and we would never have any uncomfortable conversations with anybody ever. Friends, that's just nonsense. It's just nonsense. Yes, let me acknowledge. There are things that we do as Christians and the church um, that don't help things at all, okay? Uh, we can be just jerks sometimes or bullheaded or foolish. But even if we were as perfectly loving and gracious and kind as Jesus himself, he was still hated. He was hated by both sides, by the way. He was hated by the Pharisees. They would have been the more politically and religious conservative of the day. They were legalistic. They were strict. They were domineering. They would have been, you know, kind of the moral majority sort of folks. He was hated by them because he was a friend of sinners. And he was hated by the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the religious and political liberals of the day. There's, there's no real truth. Yeah, we've got the scriptures, but we can kind of make it mean what we want it to mean. And we just accommodate the culture. If that's what Rome says, we'll just do what Rome says. We'll find a way to kind of twist the scriptures to, to go along with what Rome says. And the Sadducees, the, the more you know, religiously and politically liberals of the day, they hated him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't agree on anything except for this. Let's kill Jesus because we hate him. Do you think that following Jesus is going to sometimes put you in an awkward position? It's going to put you in a position of having to endure some reproach? 
I think if you're following Jesus rightly, you'll probably have enemies on both sides of the political aisle and both sides of the religious aisle. Following Jesus is going to cost you everything. But the fourth thing is there's a promise of eternal life. Verse 14, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Oh, this is great news because a short view, a temporary view, a a limited view would say, well, I don't want to be despised by people. I don't want to give up my comforts of life. I don't want to give up what I've got because I've got it good. I've got it pretty good at least, and I want to keep what I have. But the author of Hebrews reminds us that the promise is eternal life. Here we have no lasting city. Friends, there is going to be a day when there will not be such a thing as the United States of America. Can you wrap your head around that? Should the Lord not return, should he tarry, there will be a day when planet Earth exists without a USA. We're only, what are we, 250-ish years old as a country? That's like just a blip in, in human civilization. Nations come and go. Relationships come and go. Cultures come and go. Fads come and go. Trends come and go. If you are a Christian, though, you're part of a city, a lasting city, something that's going to last far beyond the United States of America, and by the way, who no terrible presidential candidate could ever screw it up, because Jesus is the king. Is that good news? (laughs) Jesus is the king. He's the king. He's the Lord. He's the priest. He's the prophet. He's the ruler of it all. And if you're a Christian, that's where your citizenship really lies. I actually think the more we can press into that, the more it frees us from the the fear and the panic and the terror that I see going around right now. So much apocalyptic language around our politics. And and, and hear me on this. I know that the president's going to have some impact on our lives. I know things You know, people on both sides of the aisle aren't particularly excited right now, but if you're a Christian, you don't need to give place to despair because you're a part of a, a lasting city, the city that is to come. Never settle for the things of this earth when we await an eternal inheritance. Amen? Don't settle. God's got greater things for you. And then number five, he says, all of this should lead us to a life of praise. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That, that all of this response, knowing that we are sinners, that Jesus died and rose again to, to give us salvation, that we're throwing all of our chips into the middle of the table, we're, we're following Jesus, that cost of discipleship, and we've been promised an eternal, unshakable inheritance. What should that do in us? That should give us a lifestyle of praise. We should just go through every single day thanking God, praising God for every single good thing we've received from him. How many of you could stand to grow in your thankfulness and your praise to God on a daily basis? Okay? Real talk here. We are prone to grumbling, aren't we? Prone to complaining. But look, the more we see what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, the more those things that we are prone to grumble about start to fade away and the more we're able to do what this says, to give, a, to give him continual praise. I like that word praise and the word worship. I, um, I tend to be a little bit of a word nerd or a little bit of a, I think this office staff would call me a word Nazi uh, because we, we recently hired on Pete to be our music and production director. And so a couple people kept saying, oh, we got a new worship director. I'm like, no, we have a new music director because what we do here on Sunday mornings isn't worship. Let me say that differently. That is worship when we sing, but so is when you get in your car and drive home. That's also worship. How you treat your kids tonight around bedtime, that's worship. 
how you treat your staff tomorrow morning when you go into work or your coworkers. That's worship. All of life is worship. Amen? And so what we do here on a Sunday morning when the musicians have their instruments, that's part of it, but it flows into all of life. All of life, giving God thanks and praise. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers from the last century in, in England, he says this, in fine praise means this, that you and I are appointed to tell out the goodness of God just as the birds of spring wake up before the sun and begin singing and singing and singing all of them with all their might. Become ye the choristers and the choir members of God. Praise ye the Lord evermore, even as they do, who with songs and choral symphonies day and night circle his throne rejoicing. This is your office and it is a holy and privileged one. Oh, God's been so good to us. He's taken our sin, taken our shame. Jesus died on the cross, rose again, promised us an eternal inheritance, so now we can live a life of worship and praise. That's, that's the foundation. That's really what the leadership's foundation really is. Is that gospel truth, that picture of a, of a life of response to God. Now, he brings it back to the topic of leadership again, and, and this is where we'll start to uh, wind it down. He says this, verse 16. He says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Verse 17, this is the verse that you all came here for today, right? Obey your leaders and submit to them. <laughs> they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Then he closes with pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Let me give you three things, three ways that the people of the church, the members of the church can respond. And in doing so, they bring not only the leaders of the church joy, but they bring God joy. The first one is this. Actively involved members are a great joy to the leaders. We actually see it directly in verse 16. Uh, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Do not neglect to do good. What good, church family? Pretty open-ended, isn't it? Do good. What opportunities has God provided you with? What needs have you identified? What areas have you looked at and say, boy, the, the church seems to really be struggling here. I, I love these conversations with people because people come and say, hey, it seems like our church could really use some help in this area. I'm like, great, we've been waiting for you. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for identifying that problem. We actually have probably found the right person to help with that. But it says to do good, pretty open-ended, and then it says, and to share what you have. So being active and being generous. I know there's, a, there's a multiple stories of this, and I touched on this last week. I think we were talking about money, but I, I know of somebody in our church who makes their living uh, working with their hands or carpenter, and their entire tools were stolen from their truck. Their community group rallied together, took a collection, bought them all new tools, so they were able to not even go, I don't even think it was but just a few days without being able to go to work and provide for their family. Scripture would say that God is beaming from ear to ear with joy. And, might I add, the pastors of the church, we were pretty darn happy to hear that as well. Because that shows people who are active and involved and generous. That's a delight. For those of you who are parents, 
You ever seen your kids share with one another, like on their own? I know it's like a unicorn sighting, right? At least for, for some parents. Like, have you ever seen your kids just like, here, like, I'll just share with you. Let me just give that to you. Like, who are these children? You know, who's kidnapped mine, right? Does that, doesn't that give you such great delight when they share with one another? For those of you who are bosses or an employer, you ever seen your coworkers like collaborate on something to solve a problem and like work together and fix it? Doesn't that just delight you? For those of you who are in a position of, sub- of submitting and following other leaders, how are you active? How are you involved? And how are you sharing? Because such things are joyful, not only to the leaders, but to God. Here's the second thing that causes God and leaders joy. Joyfully submitted members. Now, the word submission gets a bad rap in our culture. And I think the reason why it's not exclusively limited to this, but it's, it's definitely involved. It's this. It's UFC fighting. Okay? UFC fighting uses the word submission. Not all of you are ultimate fighting fans, I can tell. Uh, I'm not really that much of a fan either. T- you know, turn it on once in a while. If there's a, f- a free one on, I'm not going to pay for it. But they do this, this thing called submission. You win by submission. And what submission means is that dude A grabs dude B by the arm, wrenches it into some sort of ungodly position, and dude B says, I can't take it anymore, I submit. That one person uses a show of force and a show of power to make the other person do what they want. Friends, that is not biblical submission. you're, You're tentative with me right now, okay? Somebody using force and power to overpower and domineer the will of another one is not what the Bible means when it uses the word submission. Amen? Amen. And I can tell you that authoritatively from the words of Jesus Christ, not only the words of Jesus Christ, but the example of Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew 20, Jesus' disciples are having a bit of an argument about which one of them is Jesus' favorite disciple Which one is really the best disciple, the gold star disciple, the one who gets to sit at the prominent place at Jesus' right hand? And so Jesus, I imagine, shaking his head a little bit, says, all right, fools, let's call a family meeting, okay? And he says this to them. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Think about that phrase. I'm in charge, you're not. Lording it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. This top-down, I'm the boss, I'm in charge, you have to do what I say. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, think about this. Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews says, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Does Jesus have some strength? Does Jesus have some power? Does Jesus have some authority? Could Jesus get us in an arm bar, get us in a chokehold and force us to submit if he so wanted to? Yeah, yeah, you better believe he could. Not a trick question. What does Jesus do instead? He takes on the nature of a servant. He, he takes off his outer garment. He gets down on his hands and knees. He washes his disciples' feet. A job that was reserved for the lowest of the low slaves in that culture and in that day. 
He goes to the garden. He prays, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not what I will, what you will. Paul tells us in Philippians, he took on the nature of a servant. and He was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. That's our king. That's our ultimate leader. Do we submit to him? Absolutely. And how did he show that he, not only he himself would, would uh, operate as a leader, but then call us to operate as a leader? Through servant leadership. Through the laying down of our powers and our rights and our authorities and our top-down and our domineering and our lorded over. says, no, no, no. You're going to serve one another. That's what it means to submit. This submission word, this comes up um, in weddings also. I just did a wedding the other day. Actually, I think, hi guys. Didn't expect to see you at church today. Glad to have you. It's great. Uh, just did a wedding the other day and I always read that passage from Ephesians 5. You know, wives submit to your husbands. And I always just look around the audience to see which people, can, you know, kind, of, kind of that sort of reaction. But do you know what it says? Yes, it says wives submit to your husband. It says husbands love your wives and lay down your life for them. That husbands are to invest in their wives' betterment, their flourishing, their, their growth. If you actually have a husband doing that, well, then I think it's actually a joy for the wife to want to submit to that kind of leadership. Amen? If you have, if you have church leaders who are setting an example and, and, and teaching the word of God and not leading in a domineering way, but leading in a, an open servant leadership sort of way, well, then don't you think church members would want to submit to that? If that's how Jesus has led us, don't we want to submit to him? Don't we want to follow his leadership, his lordship, his authority? So Jesus shows us all of that. I, I, I belabor this point for a minute because it, it bears belaboring, but it's this. Let me, let me just say tr- two things. True submission is not forced, it's earned. True submission is not forced, it's earned. If you are in a position of leadership and you have to force someone to say, you have to submit to me, well, then you may need to go back around the block one more time on what it means to be in a position of leadership and authority. And number two, true submission is not begrudging, it's joyful. That's for those of you who are following. Okay, fine, I'll submit to you. That's not really, mm, you need to go around the block again as well. N.T. Wright, a scholar who I uh, like to quote, he says this, insofar as the uh, shepherds are doing their job, it is in the sheep's best interest to follow where they lead. This isn't patronizing the familiar charge today. It's common sense. Every Christian, every congregation needs to recognize that God does indeed call people to lead, teach, instruct, and warn the flock, and that is better all around if this task can be done joyfully. The author of Hebrews says, let them do this without groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I I am happy to report I feel no sense of groaning. I don't think the elders feel a sense of groaning. I, no, I don't think, I know. It is our joy to lead this church. You are an amazing church body and it's our joy to lead and love and serve you, even in challenging situations. And so thank you for that. The third thing the author of Hebrews says brings joy to himself, to the other leaders, to God is constantly prayerful members. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I want to check my heart. Will you just pray for my heart? I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Friends, do you pray for your leaders? Pray for us, the elders of the church. Do you pray for your community group leaders? Do you pray for those who have a position of influence and authority in your life? Let me, let me just, um, what's, the, what's the phrase when you're on thin ice? You might as well dance. Uh, let, me, let me offer something to you. 
do you pray for our political leaders? I mean, not the imprecatory judgment psalms. I mean, like, do you pray for them? Do you pray for the presidential nominees? Did you share 10 blog posts on Facebook and pray zero times this week? I know that sharing a blog post on Facebook feels like you've really accomplished something, but in the economy of the kingdom of God, praying is infinitely more valuable. The Bible gives clear instructions. Pray for those who are in authority over you. So I love you. I'm going to offer that as a challenge for you this week. For every one blog post you share on Facebook, you have to spend 90 minutes in prayer on your knees. So. <laughs> Uh, let me conclude with a, a couple of just really brief thoughts. First is this. For those of you who are in the position of leadership, specifically in the church, how are you doing? Does your leadership look like Jesus? Where do you need to grow? Where do you need to change? For those of you who lead in other areas, does your leadership look like Jesus? For those of you who are not Christians here today, let me just simply ask you, who are you following? I follow myself. No, I don't, that's, that's, that's not true. That's not consistent with human nature. You're following somebody. As the theologian Bob Dylan once said, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So the invitation today is to trust in Jesus, the ultimate leader, the one who not only shows us what leadership looks like, but laid down his life that we might have grace and love and forgiveness and salvation. And for all of us, let's remember Jesus, the ultimate leader who gave everything for us, and let's celebrate him and respond to him. Amen? And I'm going to call us to a time of response now as we uh, transition. We're going to begin by uh, responding with the giving of our tithes and our offerings. Uh, As we collect the tithes and offerings, if you're a guest, please know you're not obliged to give. This is something we're going to do as a way that we respond to Jesus' leadership. It's also a way that we're going to practice being generous like we just read about in the passage. As we respond, we're also in a moment going to welcome our younger students class, kind of our uh, middle school, uh, younger than middle school students to join us for this time of worship and response. While they're collecting the offering and while the students are joining us, let me read through a few discussion questions and prayer points, things for us to chew on and wrestle with this week. Number one, why is leadership such an important topic, not only in the church, but in all areas of life? Number two, where has God placed you in a position of leadership? Home, business, church, we all have areas of influence. What are your leadership strengths and what areas do you need growth? Number three, uh, church leadership must be explicitly grounded in the gospel. We saw that. So read through verses 10 through 15 again, and which elements of this gospel message stand out to you and which ones might you be tempted to kind of overlook or forget? And in verses 16 through 19, the author of Hebrew lists these areas of responsibility for local church members to be generous, to be submitted, and to be prayerful. Which of these areas are a strength for you, and which is God calling you to grow in? And then some things to pray about, because we desire to be a praying church. Even in line with my exhortation a moment ago, pray that God would strengthen and encourage all of those who are in a place of leadership at Sound City, and pray that God would raise up new leaders and equip them for the work of the ministry. And then pray for those who are not Christians that they would place their trust in Jesus as the ultimate leader in their life. We're also going to respond in a celebration of the Lord's table. In just a moment, the the servers will pass out the elements for communion. I'll invite you to hold on to those. We'll take that all together in just a minute. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'll give you, uh, this is for Christians, and I'll give you kind of two thoughts maybe. Uh, One would be, I would invite you to just abstain and reflect on what this, this, celebration means for us as Christians, but even, even better, I would just invite you, give your sin to Jesus, trust in him as the ultimate leader in your life, and join us at the table. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11 to 
set the passage to set the tone for what we're going to be doing here. The Apostle Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, this is what I said just a minute ago. There is no such thing as a Christian church without the cross of Christ. And so this celebration is a, is a celebration of his death. Then the Apostle Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. And I would remind you that an unworthy manner doesn't mean that you have sin in your life. An unworthy manner means you're unwilling to own it, acknowledge it, repent of it, and give it to Jesus. There's nobody perfect in here today. There's nobody who comes worthy on our own. What this celebration is, God, I'm coming to you in need of your grace. Jesus, the only perfect one, died on the cross for my sins, and so I'm coming. Help me to examine my heart. That's what Paul calls us to. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty, so let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So I invite you into a time of reflection Whatever I've shared, whatever words from the scriptures have stirred your heart, I encourage you to respond in a a way that's appropriate. And then when you're ready, stand and sing along with us as this band and this team leads us in a time of response. By the way, aren't you thankful for the leadership of Elizabeth in particular? I just single her out. She is an amazing leader. And so as she leads us in song, as the band leads us in song, I just invite you to lift your voices and celebrate Jesus. Let's, Let's offer to God that praise that we're instructed to offer to him in light of what he's given to us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. And Jesus, we thank you that you don't just tell us what a good leader is to do, but you show us by your own example. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for rising again to give us salvation. And may we respond to you now with genuine heartfelt worship and praise. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.